Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women. My name is Jen Grimmett, and with us today is Dr. Prudence Lane, Associate Professor of English at Elon University, and Officer Shantae Harris-Stewart from the Burlington, North Carolina Police Department, speaking on the topic of police brutality. Good afternoon. Hello. 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 <laughs> so I'm hoping that, you know, maybe you could tell me a little bit about yourself, tell our audience a little bit about yourself. So my name is uh, Officer Harris Stewart. Uh, I started my career in law enforcement with Philadelphia Police Department in 2008, and I continued my career with them for about seven and a half years. And then I moved to Greensboro, where I worked for Guilford County Sheriff's Office for a year and a half inside the jail as a jailer. And then I joined Burlington Police Department in January 2017, and I've been there since. Um, I'm 33 African-American female. I was about to say, you look so young. <laughs> you started as a police officer when you were 15. Well, maybe started when I was 23. So, okay. Trying to keep looking young. Trying. All right, great. And I'm Prudence Lane, and I started teaching a class at Elon called Prison Nation back in 2006 that examines the role of uh, the prisoner, really, in our criminal justice system. And I've taught that class at Elon ever since. It's, it's pretty popular. It has enrolled the law enforcement as well as our learning alongside our Elon students. And um, in that work and through that class, I've done some work locally in Alamance and Guilford counties with law enforcement. So I'm really glad for the opportunity to share with the audience some of my thoughts on um, police brutality. Maybe to get us started, police brutality. How, you know, how does that distill down? So police brutality essentially is the use of unnecessary or excessive force by the police in their interactions with the public in the simplest terms. And the history of police in the United States is interesting, especially as it relates to African Americans and black and brown peoples, because police departments, their primary functions were as slave patrols. And so blacks and police have always had a very antagonistic relationship. So I, it's really interesting when people say, well, why do people run from the police? Sometimes it's not out of guilt, but just simply that they are afraid because of that history. And on the other side, I often get police officers who say, well, how long must we pay for that history? And my response always is as long as it's current and ongoing. And, or at least the perception exists that, that those kinds of histories and antagonisms are still there. Um, when you first asked the question, of course, the first thing that popped in my head was excessive force. Um, more so towards unnecessary things that have been done to people in response to things that they have done. I do agree with the some people might not be running outside of guilt. It might just be because they're actually scared or something like that. And I only say that because with me being African-American in Philadelphia, if I get pulled over by a cop because nobody knows that I'm a cop until you come to the car, I have got nervous just because of the history. And it's not because, you know, 
yes, I'm a police officer, but I'm also human first. So when you see what people have done to citizens and civilians already, and now at this particular moment, I'm a civilian or considered one. Now I'm like, you know, stiff at the wheel. Um, you know, locking my door, making sure I don't move too much or whatever, just out of fear. I have my own fear with things that I've seen on television and everything like that. Of course, I don't really like the fact that, you know, me personally would have to pay for things that has happened because I'm not that type of person. But I have to continue to be me in the hopes that people realize that every cop is not the same. And, and you know, I... It's really interesting, too, because we talk about police brutality a lot in relation to African-American men, but we don't often have the same conversations about women and their encounters. I mean, when people think about female interactions with police, they often, or, or even the criminal justice system, it's usually around issues of sexual violence. Um, and assault, but there are other forms of violence too enacted on female bodies that we have perhaps not discussed. So, you know, the majority of women who actually are incarcerated are either there because of some drug related issue or usually because of some culpability as a result of a, of a male partner or violence enacted on her by a male partner. But I find it interesting that Officer Stewart is nervous, even as a, a police officer, by being pulled over. It's like the white coat syndrome. You're feeling okay or your blood pressure is good until you get to the doctor's office. Right. And he or she walks in the room and suddenly your blood pressure shoots up. And I've heard other officers, black, white, female, male, talk about the feelings that they get when they see a patrol car behind their car and so on. So that kind of response comes from somewhere. We can't negate it. And I think the trauma for, for black and brown women is doubled because even when she is not the victim of or the, the object of the force or abuse, if her son or brother or male partner is involved, especially mothers, then that feels almost like an additional violation as well. So when we see, you know, the cases of the, of the Alton Sterlings and, and so on on television, Yes, there are black males involved, but there's somebody's son, somebody's husband, brother, and so on. So it, it, it feels like a double assault. Yeah, and I haven't, personally, I don't think I have encountered too many, like you said, I haven't seen too many female brutality incidences, but I definitely have seen the background. Um, like, for instance, one of my friends, her son's father actually got killed by a Philadelphia police officer this year. Um, he wasn't armed, and from what I'm hearing, or at least reading, that the officers weren't justified in shooting him. And, you know, that puts me in a tough spot because it's like I'm a police officer, but this is also my friend's son's father, so this is like my friend going through, you know, something. Generally, when it comes to situations like that, I tend to keep my opinions to myself because, you know, you, you 
damned if you do, damned if you don't. You know, if you try to be honest, then that can jack you up with your job. But then if you try to say another thing, then that can jack you up with the public. So it's like, for the most part, I don't say anything. But his kids, mothers are definitely, you know, touched by that. And his fiance, who he had recently got, you know, engaged to, went through that. Uh, I have seen videos with uh, female police brutality. It wasn't necessarily police brutality. Like, I had a ride along today, and she asked me why did I become a police officer. And I told her that I was pulled over before with my mom. And this is, I mean, I was a kid. This was a long time ago. And the female officer was really nasty in Philadelphia. She was really nasty. And my mom is the type of person who always keeps her purse in the trunk. So her driver's license is not up front. It's not on her. And she wanted to go to her trunk, and the lady was just rude. And I just was like, I want to be a police officer, but I'm not going to be that one. I'm not going to be that police officer. Because for me, as being a child, I, I thought what everybody thought. You know, they're supposed to protect you and for the most part do the right thing. Like I told my ride along, it was like a glorified job to me. You know, like I'm like, how do you even become a police officer? How does that happen? It must be a really tough thing. But um, the video that I seen, I don't know if y'all ever seen it. It was a, a female, and supposedly the two cops made her like pull her pants down on the side mm -hmm. of the road, and from I think might have put his hands, you know, where he wasn't supposed to, in, his pri in a private area, and it was just too much, you know, it was really too much. Is, you know, some of these situations are definitely unrealistic to me because of me being a cop, and it's like. How is it that I can restrain myself from doing certain things that some cops have done, but you can't? And that's what you signed up for. And it's the most powerful position really in the world because even beyond judges, cops have the ability to take people's freedoms away just by a simple stop. And that's a really strong aphrodisiac if you can be corrupted and swayed by that level of power and not use it sparingly. And so the questions of, of why you become an officer, I think are so fundamental to the kind of officer you will be. And the kind of officer you begin at, I think in, your, in the early stages of your career is not the officer you will be right. later on. Because I hear a lot of males say, Man, I, I'll be honest, I just love cops and robbers. And the thought of chasing bad guys just got my adrenaline going. I'll hear the same thing from female law enforcement. It's the more empathetic, you know, I wanted to make a difference. I had a bad encounter and I wanted to be a change maker. But then for even when we don't think about public law enforcement, but we think law enforcement, law enforcement, even the, the, the kind of pressures for African-American female officers is tremendous because they're going to be among the few in their departments, whether that's a small, medium, or large department. And they can sometimes be, I think, by that pressure, be silenced, right? The blue wall of silence from a public perception is real, but you'll hear lots of chiefs and other departments that say they are committed to transparency, to being open, and to fostering um, the kind of environment where their officers feel comfortable 
talking about things, but the realities are that people will not because they fear the, the repercussions. So if you are an African-American female, like on the beat or in your department, you want to be backed up. You want to be respected by your peers, male and female. So how do you deal with, with what that means about getting promoted, right? What are kind of the opportunities available to you, the training, the development, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not just when I think about police brutality or interactions between law enforcement and African-American females. I'm not just thinking about the public, but I'm thinking about the African-American females and women who are in departments and trying to make their way. We're in a unique position in North Carolina because we've, we have a cohort of African-American female chiefs going. Raleigh is one example, Winston-Salem is another, and, and so on. And so we love to see more of that. You know, one of the earlier comments about not seeing as much of a presence of police brutality against women and girls of color, how can our educational system employ more restorative justice techniques to help address um, classroom disruptions, you know, where students, you know, and particularly the girls of color not ending up on the floor with a knee at the back of their head because they refuse to give up their cell phone. Well, I mean, just coming up, I like even when I started my career as a law enforcement officer and, and you know, talking with my black friends, my black female friends, the stereotype is that female officers tend to be a little bit more hostile because they're females and they feel like that the females have something to prove. So they have these nasty attitudes and that goes for civilian females too. You know, it's sometimes that guys give you a hard time too, but as far as the the angry right, the angry syndrome. yelling and talking and being combative and refusing to give you stuff because in a, they're in a mindset where you can't really do anything to them. That plays a part into some things too. A lot of people like to be confrontational now, especially with everything going on. They question everything that police do. Like, why do you want to see my license? You don't need to see that. You don't have the right to see it. You know, so everybody wants to argue with me or police officers, and it's really unnecessary sometimes. And that's just gone through me being in the car. I was, I'd be nervous sometimes, but I also follow directions because I want this interaction to hopefully go smooth and I can continue on with my day. My my wife has got pulled over by a cop, and her story was that she was driving, she pulled into a gas station to go into the store, and as soon as she got the car, the officer, and he was Caucasian, he was like a state uh, sheriff or a state trooper, was yelling at her, get back in the car right now. And she didn't even know she was pulled over, because you know, she parked. And she just thought that he was so nasty, and he gave her a ticket, and then she went on her way. She just couldn't believe how he was yelling at her outside. So, and my wife is a cannon. So she could have easily turned that into the angry black woman, but she held it down more than likely because of me, because I'm a cop. So she, she holds a lot in because of me, but she's very vocal about whatever. She would actually be a good person to have on here because she would have a lot to say about the brutality <laughs> part. But um, yeah, so it, sometimes it goes both ways. 
Like, if you, you know, if you want to be treated a certain way, you got to treat a person a certain way. Yeah. And, you know, I would actually reframe the, the conversation a little differently and say that the interactions that women and, and black and brown girls might have with officers is even more traumatic and dangerous. Again, because of the silencing and the, the interactions are sometimes emotional and psychological where we've been seeing the interactions with black men and police in, in, in framed as physical interactions of, of beatings or shootings or something. With women, it can sometimes be those unseen and invisible traumas that are so damaging. So in classrooms, for example, this is where teachers and law enforcement need to work differently. We have at our Title I schools increased school numbers of school resource officers. We have state and other kind of legislation that says teachers or educational systems have to report to law enforcement something that happens with a kid. We have the labeling of, of students as disruptive and so on, or nonconformists. And so if teachers, more than 76% of our teachers in this country are white females, don't have the cultural sensitivity to understand when our kids are struggling, when they might have undiagnosed mental issues, when they might be dealing with other traumas at home and are so using coping mechanisms that they are labeling as disruptive and putting them then into other kind of categories and spaces where they are castigated, then yes, you're gonna have a school to prison pipeline where black and brown people are disproportionately represented. And so, yeah, I mean, this is a whole other podcast if we talk about the effects of Brown v. Board and why so many um, of our teachers are, are white and not of color um, one of the unintended consequences of integration in this country. But we also need to talk about what our school systems have to be doing, which is having more mental health professionals actually on school grounds, on college campuses, so that parents working two, three jobs don't have to take off to go get a kid, to try to go to a health professional, and then they lose a day of school but that that kid can actually be accessed by a counselor or a psychologist or a psychiatrist and be dealt with at school. That these kids aren't labeled as disruptive because they are trying to cope with a parent who might be in jail or absent or dead or they might be, be, be assaulted or, or something or the parents don't have money and so they're falling behind in class because they can't get classes. I mean, there are all kinds of factors. Before we go from A to Z or zero to 60, let's actually talk with our young girls and, and model behavior for them, right? So that's one thing I know that the, the Burlington Police Department does um, since the, our, our chief, Jeff Smythe, has, great, has great chief. come on is really building community partnerships and relationships so that where a young 
uh, girl in a car with her mother has a negative interaction with one cop, then the nearly 800,000 or more officers don't get that entire label. So I took my class up to BPD a couple weeks ago for a demonstration and they reflected on the experience after and said, you know, I was just prepared to just hate these cops. I, I just hate it. can't stand these pigs. You know, all kinds of 12. stuff. And then after, they're like, well, darn it. They're people too. Yeah. <laughs> Berlin, they're people too. Burlington is really good about that. Like, and it's crazy just from the jobs that I go on, the, either they... They hate cops. They tell you straight to your face, too. I hate cops. One little boy, I was at the house talking to his mom, and he was just saying a bunch of gibberish, but he was pointing. And I'm like, what is he talking about? And finally, he said something clear, and he said, don't shoot me. Wow. He had to be two years old, of course, African-American. And I just looked at him like, what? You know, like, yeah. don't shoot you. Why would you say that? And she was like, the mom was like, you know why he's saying that? And it's like, on my days off, I work at uh, Newland Elementary School. Mm -hmm. The kids that I see in there, like, you know, it do take some time. And it's crazy how majority of my close relationships at Newland are with some type of troubled kid. Because they always come to the office, and that's where I am. So now I got to sit with them. And sometimes they change around, but they ultimately are great kids. It's just whatever's going on. Like, one little boy, he got into a fight. And he was eating. I'm like, why are you eating like that? He said, because I don't eat at home. And I just looked at him like, wow. Well, and I think that was kind of, and I may not have framed it in the way that I had hoped, but to look at the restorative solutions, they're there to help, you know, really look at the bigger problem where it doesn't have to escalate to that confrontation in class. Right. You know, where if there are the resources in place that are seeing the not eating at home and the I can't sleep because, you know, there is way too much disruption around my home. Are the, are the little kids smell like weed when they come to school? Mm -hmm. um, one, one kid, he see me, he spoke to me over the summer. I arrested his dad. So, you know, that's kind of hard, too, because it's like, I know he remembers me. You know, because he asked me that I remember his dad. So I had to arrest his father in front of him. So now, of course, I have to prove myself to this little kid to show him that I'm not bad because I arrested your father. You know, like, I'm still the same officer that you've seen the year before, even though I arrested your dad over the summer. And he hasn't treated me different. You know, he still says hi and everything, but I felt awful when I had to do it just because this kid knows me, he speaks to me all the time, and I just took his dad away. So that's definitely not easy. What kind of impact does that have on you when you're, the majority of your arrests are black and brown peoples and you're seeing the same cycles over and over as an African-American female and officer? How do you cope with that? I mean, the effect... I think my career has been so successful because I am open and I treat people with respect, no matter what. I don't care what you do. And there's plenty of people that I started off my arrest and we were combative 
Well, at least he was combative with me because he was. And by the end, by the time I took him to jail, he was like, I like it. <laughs> so <laughs> that's generally what I'm aiming for every time. Like, please know, I always joke around and say, I would rather be on lunch right now, but since you decided to do whatever you did, now I got to arrest you and take you to jail. So you brought, the, you brought me to you. I didn't just come find you. So it's just, one of my ways is just turning it around. That's how I cope with it. You know, I hope that we can have a conversation. I can explain myself why I had to do X, Y, Z and get through to the person that by the time this interaction is over, they speaking to me when they see me. Even though I took them to jail and took, them, took their freedom and they might have to stay in jail for about a month. But I also, I always feel like if you treat people right, they'll treat you right. Now, sometimes that doesn't go right. So when those times are hard, I guess one of the ways I cope with it is just knowing that I did my best. I tried, I tried to do my best, and if this person didn't come around to me or whatever the case may be, it's understandable because of what I just did. So I just hold my career really close to my heart, and I just always know that you can't, you can't fix everybody. You can't change everybody's thought process overnight. Yeah. So this 30-minute to an hour interaction that we have is a little bit of time to try to make a big impact, but sometimes it happens. But when it don't, you just got to keep on moving, try to do it with the next person. Yeah. I think we're a long way from restorative justice, though, because criminal justice in the system is embedded in who we are. Um, it was Mandela who said you can look to a country's criminal justice system to tell you about that society. So we throw away our kids. We don't give people second chances. We lead the, the world in the number of people who are incarcerated between 2.3 and 2.4 million. That doesn't account for the nearly 8 million more that are under some form of supervised um, either probation or parole, right? We dump our mentally ill or people who are drug addicted into our prison systems. We have a penchant for violence, right? We love violent sports and, and machismo and all <laughs> kinds of stuff, right? Like, like we, we eat that up. And then if you think about what Michelle Alexander talks about in her 2012 publication, The New Jim Crow, we are looking at a criminal justice system that is essentially using prison labor to, to, to fund a lot of, of what we do. So when people talk about Made in America, that's great. But I often tell my students, where in America is it made? Know that because you sometimes have these big corporations that have set up shop in our prisons and are basically like getting um, really cheap labor for, for their huge profits as well. And so we're not reinvesting that. So criminal justice and solving and reducing perceptions of police of, of African American and brown peoples as the other and African-American and brown peoples looking at police as these barbaric, like, just um, awful people, then it takes a collective and a multi-perspective approach to actually get us to where we want to go, if we want to get there. I use Angela Davis's work in my class, Are Prisons Obsolete? And the overarching question in that work is whether and how would justice for us look in the United States without the prison system? If we didn't have prisons as an alternative, 
what would we do differently in this country? It's a great question to ponder. And it, that is an interesting question. I, I have no clue what you would do with people. We would, tr- we would try harder, wouldn't we? We would, we would try harder in our schools, right? We, if, if prison wasn't the first line of defense, we would invest more money in having more beds dedicated in this country to mental health issues. It's like 100,000 beds in the entire country. So people are using ERs and other palliatives to actually deal with people who need ongoing and consistent care as well. So with me not being from here, I heard that there used to be a lot of mental illness places that they used, but they shut all of them down. So the majority of the people get sent. So I mean, how were things when it was more access to places like that as far as? I'm not from here either. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not either. Okay. So I, I come I come from the Caribbean, but I grew up in New York and went to school in, in D.C. and, and oh, Miami. Oh. And there are still a few, like Shepherd Pratt in Maryland, that are dedicated mental health hospitals. But if you look like even at, at L.A., um, there are prisons that have like a, a wing, right, for mental health. And, and it, it shouldn't be. It, it breaks your heart, too, when you see some of these kids go undiagnosed and untreated because their parents can't afford the medications to help stabilize them. Um, and, and they struggle, so then they have interactions with, with police. And it then takes, I think, education on the part of, of our society because every police citizen interaction will de- will start with the 911 call by the citizen and the way that's framed will determine the outcome hey i see somebody who looks really suspicious walking down the road and it's just a, a black or a brown person minding their own business going around going I mean, they, they they do they do that that happens a lot and you know it's definitely not an excuse, but sometimes that's why officers respond the way they do because you're saying this person has a gun, mm-hmm. waving it out. So, you know, you meet that type of force with a gun. So it's like, okay, if this person has a gun, I have to at least be mindful that I might need mine. And then you get there and it's not a gun. And it's just like, where did you get all that information from? You know, like, yeah. so it's the gun is the, some of the calls is just like uh, walking in the street, talking to yourself, you know, in my head, like, what's wrong with that? I talk to myself sometimes when I'm riding in my car, you know, so, and sometimes that leads to brutality because sometimes you get that call and they say one thing and you don't handle it the right way, then you get there, you find out that the person does have mental illness, but you're treating them like a person who doesn't, and then they catch on to that, and then the stuff hits the fan, and then... So, what I'm hearing you say is that um, bias and stereotyping has a direct implication for how you all are able to do your work. I mean, that's like the heart of the department, the communications. And I mean, they do a great job because their job is really tough, especially when you got something. You got one situation going on, but you got eight people calling and everybody has a different story about what's going on. So this person's saying he got a gun. This person's saying he got a knife. This person says he don't got nothing. This person says that, you know, he's beating his wife the other person says the wife is beating her you know so it's like how do we what, what is going on like so no matter what 
we here, whether it's right or wrong, we still got to go. And then now we got to figure it out once we get there. In a split second, right. too. So one of the other things we hear in incidents of violence, why did he have to shoot him? Couldn't he have just tasered him? And I hadn't realized the amount of precision it takes to make that decision about the taser or the gun based on what somebody is wearing. Is he or she wearing a heavy coat? Right. Are they really obese? Which means then that the taser won't be necessarily effective. Is it angled just so? Right. Are, are they the right distance? Right. Because the taser, in order for it to work effectively, you have to have both pawns go at a, a nice amount of distance away from each other. But if you hit them right here and the other one misses, then you ain't got nothing. It might be a little shot, but it's nothing to you know, take the person down, and then, depending on the person, you just agitated them because it didn't work. I mean, I heard people in uh, prison or whatever the case may be, or even on the streets, practice breaking those. So while you tasing them, they just start rolling and pop the strings, and then now you got to do something else. And now they pissed because you done tased them. So now it's like, now what? And for especially for small frame women in my department, which there are, now we got to fight this six foot five guy that weighed about 300 pounds after we tried to tase him first, but it ain't working. I want to end cap our discussion with a couple of questions. The first question I have is, so you had mentioned why you became a police officer and that it was out of, you know, the desire to create change. Right. So... Could you talk a little bit about what is the impact when girls and women of color see themselves reflected in potentially, you know, in occupations that are either stereotyped as um, harmful or not typically housed by um, you know, black females, brown females. I don't know. Like, what kind of positive impact have you seen that make? I mean, the, you know, you have kids running towards you instead of away from you. Uh, the moms call you personally. Sometimes I give my card out, so the moms call you personally because they noticed that your interaction was good, so they like they want you to come back. Um, I had, when I had just started my career in Philadelphia, this little boy, he was like, hi. He waved at me and my partner thought he was so cute. And we waved back. He was like, I hate cops. I was like, what? So the positive thing is just that they, some people know, you know, even just being with a complainant and we smile or laugh together is big to me because you see that I'm human. We was with somebody earlier and we was making jokes and all that stuff. I almost sometimes forget I even had my uniform on just to be that personable because it's like, oh, snaps, I'm in a cop car. That's why these people driving like this crazy. But the impact is you get that young generation that is up and coming, which is the next people I'm going to have to deal with on the street, possibly acting one way when they see me and everybody else will follow, hopefully. So the impact is that you, if you get a couple of people to get on, on the right track, hopefully everybody else will follow, including their parents. Because sometimes the kid got to show the parent. Because the kid, the parent is already grown and their mind is basically made up on how they feel about cops. Mm -hmm. But now you got this cop being nice to your child, treating your child, you know, like I check on children. Like if I tell you I'm coming back, I come back. You know, how you doing? 
or what's going on. Like that's one of the reasons why every time I work at an elementary school, I always go to Newland because my first day they kept asking me was I coming back, which is a good thing because they clearly like to be there. So now I have to commit to keep coming back because they they're gonna think that I don't keep my word. So that's why. So you have to acknowledge what is making a difference and make sure that you work off of that. So like I know that they want me to come back. So if I really want to make an impact, I need to keep coming back. And I came to Elon in a time when the rash of of fatal police shootings of unarmed black men was rampant. And I made a, a pledge, not on my watch, not at Elon. At the time, I was serving as the coordinator for African and African American studies. And I made it my business to go out and introduce myself and meet the new chief at the time, Cliff Parker. And when um, Chief Smythe came, wanted them to know who I was. And I wanted them, more importantly, to know who our students are, our African-American students, and for our students to know who they were. So that the interaction was just like, not about the cop, but the, uh, the interaction was about Shantae, right? About the person. And I recognized that they were far apart and in the middle were their negative perceptions and unfounded stereotypes of each other and just worked and committed to breaking down those barriers. Um, and we've been lucky. Um, and, and I hope that, and, and not just lucky, but a lot of us have worked to make sure that that, that happens, um, to also not stand for, um, the kind of hate and segregationist politics that have governed Alamance County um, for a, a long time as well. And I would say that we are making really good progress. Awesome. All right, last question. Um, the theme of this podcast is learning, lifting, and leading social equity forum by black and brown girls and women. And, you know, that is aligned with the 33rd Women's Conference that took place at Shaw University in, on October 20th. I'm wondering, you know, could you make a few suggestions about how black and brown girls and women can be learning, lifting, and leading to bring about social equity? What? I would say that we hold up the world. I mean, it's not even an exaggeration. Um, um, we black girls rock, and and um, it's really for the rest of the world to to get on get in line and recognize that. Honestly, uh, it it might sound a little braggadocious, but it, it is what it is. Whether there, if you look at the history of this country, black women have been the caretakers for white people's kids for um, their, their cleaners, but their educators, their attorneys, their police officers, and they are the most educated demographic and group in this nation. And even when they are fully credentialed, if you look at a Michelle Obama or Stacey Abrams running for governor of Georgia, they still have to consistently prove themselves. So the question for me isn't, what can we do? It's like, what does the rest of society have to do to kind of catch up with us, you know? Um, 
that's just what it is. I mean, I agree. I think, I mean, all women are great. I think they all, women, period, are special creatures. I say it all the time, even with myself being one. But just watching other women, I'm empowered. You know, just watching certain women. Like, all I did was see uh, Ms. Lane's uh, credentials and her name, and I just was like, oh, okay. And I was like, oh, PhD? Okay. Because, I mean, me personally, I don't have the college degree, so... You know, and it don't have to necessarily, you don't have to have a college degree to prove yourself or be educated mm-hmm. or be smart mm-hmm. or do all the things that you want to do. So, therefore, they just got to find a niche and go with it. Don't, mm-hmm. da- don't doubt yourself or down yourself with things that you don't have, but kind of, you know, bump yourself up for all the things that you do. And you are a black woman working the streets and making a difference. And all we can say is thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women, with our guests, Dr. Prudence Lane, Associate Professor of English at Elon University, and Officer Shante Harris-Stewart from the Burlington, North Carolina Police Department. Special thanks for this podcast go to Shaw University, Elon University, and the Raleigh Apex branch of the NAACP for supporting this important work.